Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're looking at the French horror film, Martyrs. But before we get stuck into all that good stuff, what is going on? Tome 4B, the blasphemous tome that is, will soon be with us. To get a copy, all you have to do is back us on Patreon. Yep, if you're backing us at the time that the tome comes out, well... We'll send you a copy. It's that easy. Hmm. Don't have to have it delivered by Bikey this time either. Well, digital Bikey. Yeah. yeah. This will be a PDF issue only. And now on to our main topic, martyrs. Well, it's been... A little over 10 years since Martyrs came out. This was towards the end of what was known as the New French Extremity Movement. As ever, we are going to spoil the bejesus out of this film. And I'd say it probably matters more with Martyrs than most other films we've talked about. This is a film full of twists and turns. And I think the impact that it has is all the greater if you don't know what's coming. The, the sense of confusion that it engenders is probably one of the strongest parts of the experience. So if you've not seen it and if you've got any interest in it, go and see it now before you listen to any more. Yeah, go in blind as well, I'd say. Don't yeah. know anything about the film. Absolutely. And stick with it. You may find yourself wanting to turn it off about halfway through, but I would say stick with it. It's worth it. Yeah. Is it has a hell of a payoff. Mm-hmm. So the film was made by Pascal Logier, uh, who began his film career with a few short films and by working with Christophe Gans on The Brotherhood of the Wolf in 2001. Which is a film well worth seeing if you haven't already. Not really a horror film, it's more of a sort of period adventure piece with perhaps a few horror trappings. He wrote and directed his first feature film in 2004, a fairly low-key and somewhat forgettable ghost story called St. Ange. Uh, It's known as House of Voices in some English-speaking markets anyway. Yeah, I mean, I saw it a few years back and it made no impression on me. Perhaps it because I saw it after Martyrs and sort of comparing it to that. I mean, it's not bad, it's just, I don't know, made no impression. On the other hand, Martyrs which came out in 2008, his second feature film, really established his reputation. It was a late entry into the new French extremity movement, and I'd say it was one of the highlights, if not the highlight of the entire movement. While the movement encompassed such arthouse films as Irreversible, it was largely made up of horror films which dealt with extreme violence, sadism, and transgressive sexuality 
and French subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were talking a bit about this ahead of time, trying to decide, you know, what other films out of the movement we might mention as some of our favourites. And it's probably that subtitle thing that, that's acted as a barrier to you, isn't it, Matt? Because Hell yeah. Am I right in saying that Martyrs is the only new French extremity film you've seen? One of the very few foreign films I've seen, yes. And definitely one, the only one from this particular movement. So I've heard Love of the that. movement, but I've never seen any other film from it. Because my main problem with subtitled films is I fall asleep in them. Yeah, but you fall asleep in absolutely fucking everything, Matt. <laughs> yeah, more so and quicker so if it's got subtitles. And the, the one thing that saved me from this is that, A, it's a compelling story, but also it's relatively light on dialogue. Yes. And then when the dialogue does come up, it's fairly short exchanges that aren't quick rapid-fire between characters probably the only problems i had were the opening couple of scenes where it was pretty dialogue heavy but after that i've managed without any problem through the rest of the film but then paul i mean obviously as as someone else who's seen a number of these new french extremity films what would you pick out as a highlight or some highlights of the movement well maybe we should just say the names of some of these films scott for people who aren't aware of what they are so there's frontier there's inside um, yeah, there's, there's high tension, uh, yeah, otherwise, otherwise known as uh, switchblade romance, I think. Yeah, uh, there was eel or they uh, in English. Yeah, so there's a whole uh, bunch so, of these. Yeah. There, there were even some films that were brought into the movement despite not being French, just because they were French language, like Calvaire, hmm. which is actually Belgian. I mean, that's certainly the one I would pick of all of these. I enjoyed Inside and Frontier, but Calvaire is such a weirdly hmm. disturbing yeah. film. It's almost like League of Gentlemen is dark humour. Imagine that made into a really brutal horror film. It is basically, yeah, League of Gentlemen does Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Belgium. Yeah, yeah. With bestiality, with uh, strange piano playing in the, in the bar. Gives a whole new meaning to You're My Wife Now. <laughs> it's a very disturbing film. Yeah. And, and the one I'd pick is probably even more disturbing, but, but for very different reasons, and that's Irreversible. I mean, Irreversible is, I think this is something we'll probably say quite a lot about Martyrs as well, not necessarily a film you watch to enjoy. It is a gruelling experience, and it is it's fundamentally about a, a rape and a murder. But what's unusual about it is the whole thing is told in reverse chronological order mm. you you see the climax of the film first and then it cuts back through a series of scenes that go backward through time but you know without giving anything away that in itself makes it emotionally devastating because you sort of see the horrors that it ends up with and then you move back to a more innocent time when the characters haven't gone through all this horror but what what makes it i think one of the more grueling films i've seen is that, A, you've got the murder scene in it, which, you know, pulls no punches in its depiction of violence. It is one of the nastiest, least enjoyable, violent scenes I have seen on film. And then you have the rape scene. And if you ever worry about a film glorifying rape or it being titillating or whatever, this is the polar opposite. It is a 12-minute continuous shot that is just sheer horror. Anyway, let's move on. So the movement kind of largely dwindled out around 2010. I guess that's kind of sad because it was great while it lasted. Mm. Um, It was challenging and interesting and it felt like it was making new and different horror films. Um, Although there is the occasional film such as Raw, spelled R-A-W, in 2016, which attempts to keep the spirit alive, but doesn't really, um, (laughs) in my opinion. 
After that, Pascal Lozier went on to Hollywood after writing and directing Martyrs. He made a mildly successful dark thriller entitled The Tall Man in 2012 before returning to France and to horror to make... <laughs> what? what are you trying to say there, Scott? That moving back to France was horror. <laughs> I can't comment that... on that. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that wasn't quite high. That's, meant it, that's what yeah. I'm reading. That's yeah. what I'm reading. <laughs> we love you all equally. And, and, and trust me, I mean, compared to what we're going through in this fucking country at the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, before returning to France and to horror to make Incident in a Ghostland in yeah. 2018. Incident in a Ghostland, I do recommend. I wrote a brief review of it for The Last Blasphemous Tome. I think the point that I tried to make in there was my expectations were somewhat set by having seen Martyrs. And that, you know, is unfortunate because it's a high watermark that, you know, Logier can't quite get back to. I mean, it's still a damn good film and it even has a bit of Lovecraft in it. There was also some talk of him doing a Hellraiser reboot, but he was removed from the project. His vision of an extreme film set in the gay S&M scene clashed with the producer's desires to make something more teen-friendly. You don't get more teen-friendly than uh, good old Hellraiser and Pinhead. Yeah, I know. This is absolutely mind-boggling, the fact that they looked at Hellraiser as a property and thought this would be a nice family-friendly teen film. I mean, I guess some of the later Hellraiser films have been neutered. I don't think you should confuse teen films with family-friendly films. <laughs> yes. Yeah, You're making a big mistake but, there. But, but no, I mean, when I say teen films, I think that they were actually aiming for a PG-13 rating. What would that be here? Uh, like a 12. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's been a big That's thing. That's pretty weird. Oh, yeah, well, PG-13's weird. It's um, sort of somewhere between a 12 and a 15. Well, it's 13, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but no, in terms of the kind of subject matter it can, you know, yeah. it can deal with, it's probably closer to a 12. But, you know, the, the American rating system is always a bit weirder than ours anyway because they're much more accepting of violence and much less accepting of, you know, swearing and nudity and, mm. and sexual references. Mm. So it's difficult to say. But yeah, speaking of films being neutered, there was an American remake of Martyrs. Yeah, perhaps we should revisit that after the discussion because it might contain spoilers for, oh, yeah. uh, for what point. we're about to talk about. Yeah, let's come back to that later. And now let's explore the story of the film Martyrs. Yep, this is where the big spoiler warning alert sounds. So stop listening, go and watch it if you haven't. And then when you've had a good shower and clean yourself off, come back. <laughs> yeah. When you can smile again. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, the film opens as Lucy, a 10-year-old girl. She's bruised and battered and she's dressed in filthy clothes. She flees what appears to be an abandoned abattoir. We, over the credits, see some archival footage, apparently from a documentary or, or some kind of record of what happened, that tells us all oh, this happened in 1971. And Lucy was in no position to actually really tell the police what had happened to her. She's sent to a children's home and given counselling. One of the other girls in the home, Anna, befriends Lucy, looking out for her. Lucy is not only traumatised, 
but she is being stalked by a nightmarish feral girl who attacks her repeatedly, inflicting horrible wounds. Yeah, and this is a really nightmarish figure in the film, isn't it? I mean, mm. considering that it is this sort of pale young woman who, you know, she's covered in scars and wounds, and there's something really animalistic about the way she moves, you know, she sort of squats and things. Mm-hmm. She reminds me so much of how I picture ghouls in Call of mm. Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the thing that got me especially was that the first time you see her, she doesn't you don't really make out that kind of level of detail. Mm. Um, she's effectively a silhouette perched on the end of the, the girl's bed with these glowing eyes um, that somehow got into the room, even though she's put a chair up against the door under the handle. That when she wakes up, the door's open. And this is before the credits, I think. Yeah, the, the credits flash up after you see uh, yeah. the, the figure at the end of the bed. Yeah, fifteen years later, but we join a nice happy family gathering in the kitchen of their home. Uh, the teenage son and daughter are bickering as the father cooks breakfast. The mother comes in after working on the septic tank outside. She's dug up the whole garden to try and fix this pipe and comes in saying, here's breakfast, and drops a mouse on the kitchen table. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a bit weird. And saying, yeah, yeah this, this was stuck in the pipes, but now I can finally get my garden back. I can fill, fill in this massive hole. So there's some little bits that give an impression of what the family does. There's talk about, oh, you're going to study law at school because that's the, uh, that opens so many doors for you. Uh, the daughter's done so well because she's won a swimming award and has got a picture in the newspaper with the rest of the loving family around her. And yeah, everything's really good. If yeah. they were British, they'd be reading The Guardian. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Then, then the doorbell rings. <laughs> And the father gets up, he goes and answers the door, and there standing at the door is a young woman in a hoodie, sort of slightly hunched over, holding a shotgun. And before he has a chance to react, she unloads this shotgun into him, killing him instantly. C'est qui cet emmerdeur? Revenu, Marie Belfond. C'est dimanche quand même. Et alors? Tu te reposes quoi le dimanche? Hein? Ta semaine à l'usine? Uh, she then bursts into the house, shoots the mother, holds the son at gunpoint, and the daughter right, you know, flees deeper into the house. This all happens in the course of a few seconds. It's you know, sort of happy, idyllic family gathering, chat, 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 boom, 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 but dead. Right? And this is real boom. This is real shotgun oh, knocking God. back about <laughs> 10 feet. Oh, yeah. Yes to the realism yeah. of that. I'm, yeah, I'm all with that. That, that, that. All right, that was one bit that did bug me a little oh. bit in this film. <laughs> God. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something you see in a lot of films, a lot of action films particularly, this idea that shotguns hit someone with a blast powerful enough to lift them perhaps off the ground. Perhaps they do, Scott. Perhaps they do. No, they fucking don't. Maybe they do. <laughs> yeah, let, they let might me, do. Let me explain Newton's third law to you. <laughs> well, there's a great scene in the in the making of documentary that accompanies the DVD of this, where they go through how they did that shot. And yeah, he's pretty much on a fucking bungee cord. It's it like it. It's fantastic. <laughs> but hey, it's, it's worthy of the kind of effects in Django Unchained. So hey, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> Yeah, but I think tonally they might be slightly different films, Matt. Just a bit. Obviously distressed, the young woman asks the son if he knows what his parents have done. When he doesn't give the answer she wants, she shoots him and then goes upstairs to kill the daughter. It's basically a house invasion massacre. I particularly like her tactics of flushing the daughter out from the bedroom. Yeah, she hears a whimper. She goes inside and thinks, yeah, if I was a scared little brat, I'd hide under the bed. So what does she do? Gets on the bed, shoots through the bed. Yeah. <laughs> With the family taken care of, the killer phones another young woman who is waiting by payphone. Uh, we learn that the shooter is Lucy, and the woman on the phone is Anna. Say, 15 years on. 
Lucy is convinced that these are the people who kidnapped her and implies what she has done to them, much to Anna's alarm. Yeah, Anna really isn't happy about this, is she? She's a good girl. Yeah, but yeah, Anna, being a good friend, goes to see what's going on. And as Lucy waits for Anna to arrive, the feral girl reappears. I mean, she's now grown up as well and looks even more monstrous. And she slashes up Lucy with a knife. Lucy, you know, runs away from the whole thing, goes outside at speed and literally bumps into Anna. You get a really good look at the uh, the creature this time round as yeah. well. Yeah, and she's got wounds and scars all over her. Yes. I mean, she's not just pale and bedraggled and feral, but but she is maimed. In, in full naked glory as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you make that sound erotic. It is the polar opposite Oh, yeah, it's, com- it's completely erotic, trust me. <laughs> Matt might have found it erotic. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I, I don't want to kink shame Matt. <laughs> no. Anna goes into the house and finds the carnage, and carnage it is. Gathering herself, she piles the bodies of the family in the bathroom. Meanwhile, Lucy falls asleep in one of the bedrooms. Later, Lucy is woken by the sound of Anna dragging the bodies outside and dumping them in the pit by the septic tank. But as it turns out, they're not all dead weight. Anna goes to move the mother out of the bathroom and the mother wakes up and starts whimpering. And this obviously is not good. I mean, she tries to calm the mother down, but that obviously doesn't work because why the hell would you be calm in a situation like that? The mother tries to flee uh, as best she can, or at least make sounds of alarm. This alerts Lucy and Lucy obviously gears up to go and deal with all this. But then the, the feral girl attacks again. And we get a flashback that shows Lucy was not the only one tortured in the abattoir. When she escaped, she left another girl behind. The feral girl who has been attacking her ever since. Hammer time. Lucy beats the mother to death with a hammer despite Anna's attempts to stop her. And that is a really, really close-up graphic, hey, I'm going to show you a head-splitting open kind yeah. of uh, kind of graphic. We've probably implied this an awful lot already, but this is not a film that shies away from showing violence. And um, more than that, I mean, it's, it's not a film that glorifies violence. When violent things happen, you see it in detail, but you don't see it in a way that feels exciting. The violence in this is, is depressing, it's horrible, it's grim. But anyway, Lucy then tells the feral girl that they're all dead now. The girl gently holds Lucy, cutting into Lucy's wrists. We see from Anna's viewpoint that Lucy is actually doing this to herself. Dun, yeah. dun, dun. So, yeah, I mean, this is perhaps not the most surprising of revelations, but the film hasn't given us any direct hints at this stage that the feral girl is a hallucination. This is a bit of pride for me. I managed to work this out. This was coming after the bathroom scene. Because every time, if you watch all the encounters up until that point, she is the only person that is ever seen in the same location as that creature, or the only person that is in, like, in the beginning, awake, Mm. or but trapped in the bathroom, etc. It's only ever them two shown together. You never Mm. see anyone else see the feral creature. So I worked it out. Boom. Lucy runs outside, and out there she seems to have a revelation that even with these tormentors dead, she's never going to be free of this. She's never going to be free of the trauma that she went through. She's never going to be free of the presence of this feral girl and the guilt that she's obviously feeling over abandoning this other girl. And so she gets a Stanley knife or a small knife and just runs it across her throat, slits her throat. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, after 10 years watching this again, I was wondering, will it have the same impact? And I have to say, yes, it does. And we haven't even got on to the really bad stuff yet. But it is like, well, these are our two main characters, Lucy and Anna. Anna. Yeah. And now Lucy's just died. Yes. Well, we had, oh. three, we had three main characters. We had Lucy, Anna and the Feral Girl. And we now realise the Feral Girl is a hallucination. Yeah. So in a state of shock, Anna stumbles back into the house and falls asleep. The following morning, she tries to clean things up as best she can. In the process, she stumbles across a secret door leading to an underground structure. And this is pretty strange right here. Because up until this point, I'm thinking Lucy was clearly mentally ill and is fixated on this family. There's no thing really to say this was the family. Well, actually, there actually was. I mean, we, we sort of glossed over this because Matt mentioned the swimming prize earlier. Deliberately. Yeah. And the newspaper article. Yeah. That there was the newspaper article pinned to the fridge. And uh, Lucy, when she's explaining what's going on to Anna, talks about how she actually saw them in the paper, recognised their faces. And yeah, pulls but- out a wrink- wrinkled copy of her own clipping of the same newspaper. Yeah, but that's my point, is that she's oh, yeah. fixated on these people, but yes. that, that doesn't that's not real evidence that it's them, no, is it? That's just something yeah. she's seen in the paper, and she's like, oh, it was them. Yes, yeah, that's true, yes. Yeah, so I'm thinking it's not them, Yeah, up until this point. Innocent families died, oh my God, the horror. But this is, this is definitely a sharp right turn mm. that the film takes at this point. I think the second sharp right turn it takes, because obviously we've got that 15-year time jump and then mm. the slaughter of the family and so on. I remember this feeling of watching it for the first time, going in completely cold. Going from that introduction to the 15 years later bit and the sudden massacre of the family was a real what-the-fuck moment. And mm. then now we've got another real what-the-fuck moment coming up. And we've got more of them coming up. I mean, this film mm. is a film full of what-the-fuck what moments. <laughs> There are lots of little things like the newspaper clipping that happen in the film. But anyway, she goes to the, the cabinet and finds that it's an entrance into... It's basically a facade. It's an entrance into a corridor with a set of stairs leading down. Uh, the concrete walls of this cellar are lined with photographs of people in most hideous forms of pain. And there's a common denominator as well if you look closely at each picture. Anna finds a ladder that leads down to yet another level. This sub-basement that the ladder goes down to, I mean, it is even grimmer and darker, another concrete structure. And this appears to be, I don't know, maybe a prison cell or a torture chamber of some kind. And down here, there is this filthy and emaciated young woman. Uh, She is chained to the wall, she's covered in wounds, and most horrifyingly, she has this blindfold on. But it's not just a normal blindfold. This is a metal blindfold that has been moulded to her face and bolted to his skull. And I think the implication, it's never stated directly, I think the implication is that this is really the girl that Lucy left behind 15 years ago. Oh, I totally thought that, yeah. 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 And the feral girl. Yes. And I think it's worth pointing out here, we've described this ladder going down into an underground basement. If you haven't seen it, you're probably picturing, you know, some grotty old cellar. But actually, this is almost like a government installation. Yes. It's like it's a stainless steel ladder. It's all like clean lines and obviously whoever's built this has spent a lot of money fitting this out in a very professional manner it's very medical very sterile Mm. very cold and yeah yeah horrible but you know i i wouldn't say medical because i mean this is gray concrete walls i mean it it doesn't feel like a hospital i mean for all the sterility or the all of the cleanness of the design 
It definitely has the feeling of a place where bad things happen. Because ah, I'd counter that. There are a couple of things that stood. In fact, three things that stood out to me. One, you've got white lab coats on the pegs by the ladder as it goes into the yeah. sub basement. Kind of the things that doctors or surgeons would potentially wear. You've got the very almost X-ray screen type lit up pictures in that wall, and also the plastic drapes that fall over the doors, like you would find again in a hospital that you'd have to push your okay. way through them. Yeah. So there, mm. there were lots of again little details that kind of. All added up to give me that kind of feel. Anna takes this poor woman upstairs, bathes her and tends to her wounds. When Anna unscrews the blindfold, this is this weird yeah. metal structure over her head. I think it's like nails that she it kind of pulls sta- out. Staples. Yeah. yeah, like metal staples that she levers out from the, from the woman's head. And there's like blood and gore. The woman panics, running around until she finds a knife and attempts to cut through one of her arms like she's trying to sever her hand. Yeah, and that scene of, of Anna removing the blindfold, I mean, God, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm fairly inured to gore, but that really made me squirm. Before Anna can react, someone shoots the woman in the head, killing her. A group of strangers march into the house and take Anna prisoner. They lead her down to the hidden basement and instruct her to wait. Insert yeah. the next right turn here! Yeah, yeah, another <laughs> what-the-fuck moment. I, I, and these people turning up, they're like very regimented very ordered almost military yeah Yeah. again i mean this is something that happens very quickly i mean there is no build-up to this we don't get any warning that they're there before the gunshot and then it's just bang 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 move done this scene is over in about a minute after a while an elderly woman wearing a turban or a hat that appears turban like arrives to talk to anna the woman who the others call mademoiselle explains that she is a member of a group in brackets cult (laughs) who believe that extreme pain brings a form of transcendental understanding now you remember where i said that there was a common denominator between those photos well mademoiselle shows anna photographs of people in torment their faces beatific and their eyes filled with otherworldly understanding she explains that her organisation tortures young women, because they're the most susceptible uh, to this form of experimentation, shall we say, trying to make them into martyrs, to be able to see into the afterlife. Only a few women are capable of this, and subjects like Lucy have proven to be failures. One of the things that they outline as to how they become failures is that that little crack that the torture has opened into their psyche can result in side effects them having audiovisual hallucinations yes. like they see haven't she seen the odd monster or two or so that gives you the explanation suddenly for the feral girl and she explains about what happened to the girl with the wrap around her eyes that she constantly felt there were bugs crawling through which is why she tried to cut her own arm off but however they hope anna will be more successful <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's good that they gave her a pep talk like that. I mean, yeah. This is your first day on the job, yeah. just to say what the next 30 days are going to look like for you. <laughs> but I, at this stage, I mean, I, I find myself reminded a little bit of Videodrome because th- there's that line, what makes them dangerous is that they have a philosophy. This really seems to be the case here with this cult. What makes them dangerous, what makes them terrifying, is the fact that they're doing this for what they consider to be noble reasons. They are pretty much the embodiment to me, when because they approach this with a cold scientific logic, that they fully embrace the ethos of the ends justify the means. 
But I wonder whether somewhere in amongst all this, there is a very cynical critique of utilitarianism. If you're seeking the maximum overall happiness, then there might be costs to it. The torture and death of of these young girls brings enlightenment and happiness to a larger group of people. Then surely that's an acceptable price to pay. After being knocked out, Anna awakens in the cell. She is chained to a chair with a hole in the seat and a metal bucket underneath just as Lucy was at the beginning of the film. For most of this third act, which is about 20 minutes of screen time, we see Anna relentlessly brutalised and degraded. A large, dispassionate man punches her in the face and abdomen until she's unconscious. Repeatedly. This is one scene after another. In he walks. Smash, smash, smash. Out he walks again. Yeah, I mean, his face absolutely blank. He's not speaking to her. He's not doing anything else. He is just like a workman turning up to a job. Oh, it's time to beat the girl. I'll go downstairs, beat the girl. And this isn't glorified. This is just quite perfunctory and almost dull. Yeah. Yeah, it's monotonous, I think, would be a good word to pin to this. A woman feeds her vile gruel, or I tend to think of it gloop. Um, washes her violently with a sponge. Anna is left alone for long periods and then beaten over and over again. (laughs) You can just see from one scene to the next, even as she uh, pitifully pees into the bucket while she sat on the seat, The expression on her face, her demeanour, the growing amount of cuts and bruises. She is just steadily and relentlessly being broken. And there's the dehumanising kind of aspect, you know, when she has a haircut as well. Oh, yes. A perfectly normal everyday thing getting your haircut, but the way it's done is just so unpleasant and cold. For all the violence, I think the biggest indicator of how her spirit is being broken is that initially when they're force-feeding her this gruel and she's fighting against it, I mean, it obviously tastes nasty and she's gagging, she's spitting it out. By the time we get to the end of this no pun intended, gruelling sequence. You know, as they're putting this stuff in her mouth, she's just not fighting anymore. It's like all the light has gone out of her. During her torment, Anna hallucinates the conversation with Lucy, who tries to comfort her. A more real conversation with one of her tormentors reveals that she is progressing better than any subject ever has before. It is now time to move on to the final stage. But i got to say here that the you know, first time I saw this... Yeah, I was watching it with a couple of friends, indeed, Mike Mason and another friend. And, uh, yeah, we were like, I don't know if I want to carry on watching this. Yeah. This is just really unpleasant and seems pointless. But, but yeah, I mean, the first time you see a beating, it's sort of, yeah, okay, th- this is really nasty. This is making me uncomfortable. Oh, God, yeah, is this going to stop? And then we get another scene of degradation and then another, and then we get the beatings again and, you know, her fighting against the chains and it just goes on getting and on. cut off and, and then more beatings. And, and, yeah, at the end of 20 minutes, it is, it's numbing. Yeah. But anyway, the man takes Anna to a rudimentary operating theatre. There, using an instrument that resembles bolt cutters, after putting her in this elaborate, thing, yeah, yeah, I'd say harness, um, designed so that it can spin in several directions, so that, uh, as it become obvious in a second what he's doing, um, so they can get access to all parts of her body, he systematically cuts off her skin. Off everywhere except her face. We end up with this image of Anna hanging in this rack, still alive, 
we've seen perhaps you know similar images in Hellraiser two, uh, mm-hmm. you know someone being mm-hmm. flayed entirely, but that was a film that was filled with the fantastic and well, it was a gruesome image. It wasn't really viscerally upsetting. It was more sort of, oh, yeah, that looks wrong. Yeah, the less, less chains and less crawling out of a bloody mattress. That was a more stereotypical horror film fare. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in here, I mean, obviously with the title of the film being Martyrs, which is reminiscent of the torments and tortures of, of Christian martyrs. And there was one particular martyr, St. Bartholomew of the Cross, who supposedly was skinned alive in a very similar way. And there, there are statues and depictions of him in art. I, I saw one in a church in central London. I can't remember which one, probably St. Bartholomew's. He's standing there basically just holding his skin out at arm's length, this sort of flayed figure, holding his skin out like a coat. <laughs> uh, this is one thing we didn't actually mention about the chat that Mademoiselle has with Anna. One of the things that I found that was quite poignant was that she does deliberately make the point that martyrs are removed from religion. They're not just something that the church invented. They are something that almost transcends religion and belief. After this flaying of the skin, Anna develops that beatific, otherworldly look that we saw in Mademoiselle's photographs. The Mademoiselle then visits Anna and asks her what she sees. The camera then pulls back and we can see Anna whispering a lengthy answer, her expression remaining totally unchanged. We cut to a gathering of the Secret Society in the same house a short time later. They're almost all elderly and evidently, given the uh, particular spread of cars outside, evidently wealthy. A younger man announces the success of the project. While Anna is the fourth subject to achieve martyrdom, she is the first to recount what she saw. Um, I love the, again, the very almost scientific manner in which he presents it, that at so-and-so o'clock today she achieved martyrdom and then for the next two and a half hours she related everything that she had seen. She has now fallen quiet. Again, it seems like a scientist delivering his findings to a symposium. And I've got to say, this was another what-the-fuck moment watching the film. It's like, you've had all this torture in the cellar and then this woman's talking to her and then it cuts and there's all these people turning up, like society people turning up at the house. It's like, what the fuck are they all doing here? Yeah, just looking very... Sort of a bean and calm. Yeah, they're like they're yeah. there for a ball or something. Yeah. <laughs> he tells the assembly that Mademoiselle will relay this message and this information very soon. So we cut to the young man who heads upstairs to Mademoiselle's dressing room. When she's in there, she's got the door shut, and he talks to her through the door. And in doing so, he asks whether the message that she received from Anna was clear. Mademoiselle says, yes, it was and then asks if the young man can imagine what waits for them beyond death. He tells her that he cannot, and she tells him to keep doubting. And then Mademoiselle pulls out a gun and shoots herself in the head. We end with a shot of Anna, still alive, still with the same beatific expression. A caption tells us that the word martyr is derived from the Greek word for witness. The end. Oh, that was fucking grim. That was amazing. I love that film. I knew you'd like it, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Let's start off by talking about how horrible a film it is in terms of the reaction it provokes. Now, I remember reading at the time various newspaper articles when it was first showing in film festivals 
about audience reactions. And it seemed like a significant portion of the audience walked out. Those who stuck to the end, a good number of those complained about the film. Was this at a horror film festival? No, I I, I think it was places like Cannes and so on. So the Odeon run a thing called Screen Unseen, where they show films without telling you what's going to be on. Hmm. Uh, And it's like half price, and you don't know what you're going to get. It's going to be two hours or so, and they never show horror films. Yes. They have a separate thing called Scream Unseen, where it's always horror films. And in my experience, they're always a bit shit. Um, (laughs) That's by the by. So I think there's quite a proportion of people that don't do horror films. And yes, they may be critics, but this is a hardcore horror film. On the other hand, I mean, if you go to a film festival like Cannes, I can't remember specifically whether it was there, but you're not going in to see these films without knowing what they are. People going to see Martyrs would have at least known that they were going to see a horror film. They might not have been prepared for the kind of horror film it was, and that's a whole different thing. And I think that probably says something about Martyrs, the fact that people who had voluntarily said they were going to go along to a horror film were prepared to some extent for seeing something nasty, were not prepared for this. No, and often when we've re-watched these films like Hellraiser or whatever, I watch them with Lucy. I downloaded this one and Lucy's like, oh, what's that? And I'm like, no, you're not watching this. Like, no, <laughs> you won't enjoy it. Yeah. I can guarantee it's not a film for you. Well, I mean, that's actually, I think, a good point. Do you think that Martyrs is a film that is designed to be enjoyed? I mean, I watch films for all sorts of different reasons. I watch films to provoke an emotional reaction. Horror films I are generally enjoyable even when they're scary. But is there anything enjoyable about Martyrs? I'd argue yes, with the exception maybe of the gruelling Act 3, beating, degradation, etc. The one thing that this film does for me is it made something that was very close to being a slasher film in places remarkably enjoyable. The, the thing I hate about slashes is, oh, it's violence for violence's sake, it's all just, oh, look, another knife comes out, oh, look, another girl got stabbed, oh, look, more death, more blood for the sake mm. of it. Every single killing, every single act of violence in this film had a point, and yes. I love that. Yeah, this is very unusual, because I think it could well be branded as torture porn. And if you extracted the middle section and that was all you got, then I'd say, fair enough. Porn is just there for, you know, titillation or sexual excitement, but torture porn, there for some sort of titillation of watching violence. And A, I would say this is stripped of any titillation of enjoying the violence. I mean, yeah, some people might get a kick out of it. That's toned down as much as one could, I think. Yeah. And B, as you say, Matt, it all really pays off. I think unless you sat through that gruelling middle section, not knowing what's coming, the payoff wouldn't have the same effect. Well, I think that's almost metafictional that you have uh, Anna undergoing this gruelling extended torture only to get this you know revelatory payoff at the end that very much mirrors what the audience is going through at this stage yeah and i remember reading interviews with pascal logier who talked about how when he wrote martyrs he was going through a period of really severe depression i think a lot of that probably Mm. comes through in martyrs that there is that that sort of sense of hopelessness there is that inability to find pleasure or release or joy or any positive emotions in any of it this is a film that is just stripped of positive emotions what do we think that mademoiselle was told by anna at the end there 
there is this disconnect here because the mademoiselle is told this stuff about the afterlife and in one way of reading it it's so bad that she kills herself so she goes into the afterlife now if it was so bad what do you think, Matt? No, no, no I, could, I couldn't disagree more on that point. Mm. I think she's been told something beautiful and that she's been shown something that is so glorious she wants to get there now. She, the, the existence of mundane life is so inconsequential and so pitiful in comparison. Just skip to the good stuff right but, away. But why does she tell the guy outside the door to keep doubting? Why doesn't she you yeah, know, share, share that? Because that's news. what all those people yeah. are here to hear that news, to hear the good news. I yeah. think that's a fantastic end. <laughs> well, but but, but I, I take it in a very different way, mm. that if she has been told something so utterly horrible, then yes, all right, th- there's the idea that you might want to live for as long as possible to avoid that. But are you ever going to enjoy another second of your life knowing that that's coming? You're, you're looking at the worst possible thing awaiting you. And more than that, it's inevitable, it's inescapable. And you know, she knows that whatever of time she's got left i mean she's fairly old is just going to be torment and all right there may be a different torment waiting for her after death but it's just if she's going to go through this hollow horrible shell of a life until she gets there why this is her life's work as well yeah she's devoted to this and it's like she's invested in it and there's all these people who are they don't seem like evil cultists they seem like well, <laughs> nice people, I don't know, but we're not given anything to make us think they're not just kind of regular people. I'm not sure how if I'm expressing this very well, but yeah, um, but I mean, they, they, they don't seem lunatics, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the cult itself, if you can separate out what they do to these individual girls, the cult perhaps isn't particularly evil or doing anything else really bad. I mean, in this one oh. thing of doing this to the girls is terrible. I, I mean, I'd say that that makes them more evil. That, I mean, regardless of what their motivations are, the fact that they are part of an organisation that is willing to inflict such horrors on the innocent for what is ultimately their own personal gratification, even if they do so in a dispassionate, removed way, even if they do so with a philosophy behind it and the highest mystical and noble goals behind it, they're still monsters. They're just... Monsters with a pleasant face. I guess what I'm trying to express is their ultimate goal. It seems almost like a, a religious one of finding out about this promised land, this this afterlife, which is going to be all wonderful and bring some sort of joy to the world. And then at the end there, that's all just stripped away from her, is my reading. And in that moment, she's just so depressed or horrified by it that she tells the guy, you know, don't stop doubting. Bang. Yeah. I do take issue with that, that I don't think the ends justify the means. And I don't think, I think anyone who's willing to tell themselves that, I mean, particularly you know, when it's, it's means such as these, I think it takes a very specific kind of person to be able to come up with that justification. And I think that makes them inherently monstrous, evil people, regardless on of a how small, banal they On a small scale, this makes me think of people who are, you know, absolutely repulsed by killing an animal or having to gut it and skin it or or just handling raw meat or, Mm. you know, dealing with any of that stuff. Totally happy eating meat. You know, if you're going to eat meat, I think you should be able to kill an animal, skin it, gut it and and cook it. Yeah. Otherwise, I think you shouldn't have a license to eat meat. That's what I'd do. It's that line, is it, is it Bismarck who said something along the lines of, you don't want to know how sausages are made. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, but just as a last point, I mean, uh, one recommendation, if that sort of final impact and the, the revelations and what all this builds towards appeals to you, I highly, highly recommend, if you haven't done so already, read Stephen King's novel Revival. It's not the same kind of story at all, but there are parallels. <laughs> And now we take a look at what we can steal from martyrs for our games. Well, I think one of the things that I'd feel inspired to give a try is the kind of weird narrative structure that martyrs has got. Sorry, maybe I'm not expressing that very well. I mean, the narrative structure isn't perhaps inherently weird, but it's that whole jarring shifts in your understanding of not even what's going on, but even what kind of film you're watching. I've tried to do that with a scenario. Um, I tried to do that with dissociation in Fear Sharp Little Needles, where it has, not inexplicable, but at least at the time, seen very strange sudden scene shifts that suddenly, bang, you're here, and then, bang, this is happening. Mm. Um, Just kind of emulate that very sharp right turn that it takes. Yeah, I think that's a key aspect of Call of Cthulhu scenarios, is that what-the-fuck moment. Yeah. And this film excels at those, you know, multiple ones. But it's also the way they're delivered. I mean, when we have, you know, that bit with Lucy turning up at the door of the house or when the cult members turn up later, the fact that you have these sudden moments of brutality that come out of nowhere, those are genuinely shocking. And I'm, I'm a hard person to shock in films. It's also um, those little moments, things like the newspaper clipping on the wall, those little moments of foreshadowing that suddenly become key explanations as to why things are happening later mm. on. The phone call, because that perfect oh, yes. group, that they are the model of how I would uh, treat the new Inquisition from Unknown Armies. <laughs> they march in because, and then just state, we've been trying to get through on the phone for hours, and that's mm. why they turned up. Yeah. Is yeah, laying those little seeds that seem inconsequential at that particular moment, but then suddenly have big reverberation later on in and the scenario. And also lend a feeling of reality to it. Mm. You know, oh, they have just been trying to get through on the phone. That's quite mundane. Mm. But when they try it for like the fifth hour in a row, something's up. Yeah. I'm also intrigued by the way that, if you look at this in Call of Cthulhu terms, you've got this big backstory element for Lucy, where you know she has got this horrific experience that she went through as a, a kid. She went, ran away, she left this other girl behind, and she's been tormented by it, and she's 15 years later, she's still trying to resolve all this. And then suddenly, bang, her story ends. But then it's almost like Anna inherits her backstory, or at least that element of her backstory. It's almost contagious there. But I'm thinking in terms of you know how we'd handle that in a game. If you've got an investigator who has got perhaps a particularly juicy or, or horrible bit, perhaps you know some mysterious artefact or something they've encountered that you as a keeper were looking at and wondering if it was going to pay off at some stage, and then that character gets killed or written out in some way, then perhaps looking at ways of how that may end up suddenly becoming part of someone else's backstory, you know, becoming transferred, like you know, some kind of relay. I think this is a particularly cool cult because they are trying to do something, almost trying to do something for the good of humanity in, in trying to find out about this stuff about the afterlife. They're not trying to bring, you know, some evil god to the world to destroy the world or to bring monsters forth or whatever. It's quite difficult to create such interesting cults, I think. And we've talked yeah. about cults before, but this is a brilliant one. Oh, it's Because they have such yeah. terrible means. 
but a noble end. Yeah. Oh, assuming they're going to share that knowledge. I I interpreted that they're just going to keep it to themselves because they're the rich and powerful. But even if they're just keeping them to themselves, it's not that part isn't necessarily evil. But yeah, trying trying to discover an answer to an ultimate question that's been unanswered since the beginning of time is a, if you put it in that fashion, could be considered a noble goal. So I'm sort of taking it there's nothing definitely supernatural in this film. We're told that she sees into the afterworld. Maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. We don't well, really see necessarily evidence. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting thing because I was thinking back to the, the brain chemistry involved in near-death experiences. There have been a lot of studies recently, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sure someone out there who's listening to this knows a lot more about it than I do. But I, I remember reading you know, a few articles about how, as the brain is dying, the, I think it's the pineal gland releases a chemical that is basically DMT. And so, I mean, this is why people who take things like ayahuasca have experiences that are so much like reported near-death experiences. And so this idea that your brain is flooded with hallucinogens, that you sort of see this tunnel to the afterlife and, you know, sort of see your dead relatives and stuff like that. And I was thinking, you know, in terms of martyrs, I mean, wouldn't that be a kick in the pants if, if what if this is ultimately provoking is some massive DMT trip? And I almost wonder if Anna is just spinning her a line, yes. <laughs> telling her what she, uh, well, maybe doesn't want to hear. Um, I don't think that's really the case. I don't read it that way, but it'd be kind of, if I was that player character, that's what I'd try and do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but, I mean, if we do accept the supernatural aspect of it, if we do accept that she's seen into the afterlife, where does that fit in with Call of Cthulhu? Because in Lovecraft, this is a materialistic universe. There isn't necessarily a supernatural side of things. I mean, the great old ones and the mythos are portrayed in very alien science fiction terms. It, I think it fits totally. She's yeah. just told her a bunch of stuff of Cthulhu mythos knowledge that blows her mind as she shoots herself. What could be <laughs> more correct than that? There's, there's two interpretations I took away from that. One, one of the interpretations of the Great Abyss that Nodens guards is a repository of the communal human subconscious. So potentially if it's returning to its source, hey, you're going to go to spend the rest of eternity in this big black void with lots of voices around you. Congrats. And occasionally you might see this hoary guy on a shoulder wander past. The other one is that it's potentially giving a vision of what lies beyond the ultimate gate and showing you that you, you are all just, all, all our consciousnesses are just facets of the greater yog sothoth You can see which other parts of you have existed throughout other portions of time on other planets and of what other lives they've led. So there is potentially something afterwards in the mythos. Mm. Yeah, if ever there were knowledge that humanity was not meant to know, then this was clearly a, a direct phone line to it, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and when it comes to torture... I mean, is that something that you could ever actually bring into a game? I mean, torture is something that almost makes me uncomfortable in games anyway, because it seems to be something that player characters in general are too quick to do, that, you know, we're questioning this cultist, we're not getting the answers we want from him, we're not getting anywhere, uh, give me some bolt cutters, I'll start cutting his fingers off. <laughs> are there ways to use torture in Call of Cthulhu games that aren't completely crass and puerile? I quite like what the Elder Things did to the expedition in Beyond the Mountains of Madness, or mm. at the Mountains of Madness, even. The fact that when you're in the campaign, you go and find the leftovers in the tents, that could be very much uh, described as torture. I think that was research more than yeah. torture, though, that, I read that, it as. That was they were sort of scientists. Yeah. But yeah, but you could still almost argue, given the fact it looked like a slaughterhouse in some of them, you could, mm. you could at least put that facade on it. You could, you yeah. could. And then there's also, if I remember right, the, the inhabitants of, is it Under the Mound? Uh, the inhabitants yes. of Ki- uh, Kian? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're apparently pretty good at that. Yes. 
In terms of how you would actually present torture in a game, I mean, I'm not necessarily thinking of the, the pretext for it, but let's say that you, you wanted to have a scene like what Anna goes through. Would that be something that you'd ever want to do in a game? Because effectively it would be a significant portion of a session where the player character is completely deprotagonized, is helpless, and is just being worn down by the, play, the keeper describing stuff. To them. I think you'd need a strong motivation in the game to be doing that. It, needed, it would need to be an important aspect of the story. Off the top of my head, the only way I could really see you could do that is, you know, Scott, your character's been taken captive, and then we cut to the others for five minutes and then we come back to you and i'll just do like a 10 second thing of sort of saying okay you know they're, they're beating you up or whatever and then we fade to black again and we go back to the others but, but then you lose that whole grueling aspect of it yeah well what am i going to do stand there yeah. for 10 minutes telling you how they beat you up and cut your hair and everything no i wouldn't want to do that right just, yeah I don't no, no think, that's what i'm getting at i think yeah. it works on screen visually because it's got a power to it i, I mean you talk about deprotagonizing. But also, it's just me telling you. It's like, that'd just be dull, I think. Yeah, I, a lot of this as well comes down to, I think, the idea of why we play role-playing games. And I remember the feedback that uh, Pelgrim Press got when they were playtesting my, my framing scenario for The Final Revelation, which is, you know, yeah, yes, this is you know, probably the most Lovecraftian horror thing I've ever seen in a role-playing game, but why the hell would anyone want to do this to themselves for entertainment? Which is a great endorsement. <laughs> but, but, then yeah. they put five stars. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think that's a fair point. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily inspired by Martyrs, and is is very different. But I deliberately set out to make that as, as bleak and horrifying as I could, and to make the characters ultimately feel as helpless as I could. And... Is that the kind of thing that we, even as fans of Call of Cthulhu, even as fans of horror games, is that the kind of thing that we'd want to engage with in the game, or is that a misstep? I think it's something that you'd really have to have the right players that have the buy-in for something like that. For me personally, I'd go down Paul's route of saying, right, I'm going to say that in this particular prolonged encounter you've had, X, Y, and Z has been done to you. How you wish to react to this is up to you. If you want to go full-on screaming wreck, that's up to you. It's however you want to engage with that, but X, Y, Z, and da-da-da, that is what has been done. Move on. Well, I think Martyrs, in somebody else's hands, with much of what we saw, could have been something nobody would have wanted to watch. But the point is, it's got all that grimness in it, but it's also quite compelling. It's intriguing. If you can stomach it, it's, it's got a really good payoff. So if you translate that to a game, you're saying the game is compelling, intriguing, it's got a really good payoff. If it's got all those things, then great. But if it's just nihilistic and grim without those elements, then yeah, nobody would want to watch that film, nobody would want to play that game. Sorry, just to change the topic slightly, one thing we mentioned earlier in passing and said we'd come back to is the yes. American remake. Now, I haven't seen the American remake. No, none of us have. And Nobody has, apparently. No, I, I mean, it, 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 got, critics. it got terrible yeah. reviews. And I did ask on our Discord server whether, and, and there are a lot of horror fans on there, whether anyone there had. And while most of them had seen the original Martyrs, none of them have seen the remake. So please bear in mind that everything I'm about to relate here is secondhand, and I may get lots of details wrong. But my understanding is that they change pretty well everything that makes Martyrs work as a film. Uh, for, for example, uh, Lucy doesn't die. She comes back at the end and actually saves Anna from the torture. 
they don't show any of the violence on screen. You know, it's it's all implied. And apparently, the the screenwriter said that, as far as he was concerned, it was fundamentally a story about friendship and redemption. I saw a short clip about it. I think maybe the producer or whatever talking about the making the American version, comparing it to the original, and saying, you know, why do people need to die at the end? That's no reason for that. Heresy! I'm like, you've what? What film did you watch? Yeah, I, I don't want to watch this version because I don't know what you're doing. I mean, you might have made a fine film, but it's not Martyrs. Meanwhile, on social media. And we've had some great feedback on the first of our King in Yellow episodes. Anthony O'Dali on Discord says, Chambers had a working relationship with D.W. Griffith. They formed a curious friendship, perhaps aided by Chambers' relentless commercial success, which had eluded Griffith. Griffith decided to adapt Chambers' The Reckoning, a revolutionary war novel, first as a short, Lost I Think, then as a feature film, America. The most curious thing to come out of this partnership is a little comic play that Chambers wrote about working with Griffith. It contains, among its horrors, many references to the fish and the sea. Then he says in brackets, beware, Paul. Uh Yeah, and this includes lines apparently like, Great God, sire, what a battle I've had with this monster of the deep. Three times he came up and spouted. Yeah. Oh, it's like the old man and the deep one. (laughs) And then, where are the sea fowl's eggs? I I think that is a scenario title waiting to happen, isn't it? Where are the sea fowl's eggs? Yes. One egg or two, sir. (laughs) Sunny side up? I think think it's my turn to write a scenario for the next print edition of The Blasphemous Tomes. Right, there's your title then. So, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe I shall take, where are the sea fowl's eggs? Anthony goes on saying... The other weird footnote comes from James's novel The Whistling Cat, a kind of telegraphy romance of the Civil War. There's a bizarre bit in which the hero, in dire straits, attaches wires to the heroine's tongue at her insistence so that said tongue can act as a vibrating receiver. <laughs> That's what he tells her. <laughs> yeah. that, that, no, there's a euphemism if ever I've heard one. <laughs> Something vibrates, yeah. Uh, From its quiverings, he deciphers the Morse message which will save the day. Creepily, a little masochistic and very much a type of body horror in the right hands. (laughs) That's another scenario for you. That's fucking weird. (laughs) It is. We're not doing songs today, Matt. I was just just about to say. (laughs) Oh, if only we had one. There we go. We had a post from Ryan Hanson on BlasphemousTomes.com where he said, When reading In the Court of the Dragon, I get the impression that the narrator is not seeing reality as it actually is. The organist that he thinks he is seeing repeatedly could actually be different people. That would explain odd sightings such as seeing him pass by the same way from behind the organ and then later seeing him coming and going in many different directions down the street. This story actually reminds me of many odd stories told to me by a dear friend who has schizophrenia, where he sees the same car or person repeatedly throughout the day, as if he is being watched or followed. I hadn't quite made the connection there with paranoid schizophrenia, hallucinations and stuff like that, but yeah, I mean, that fits alarmingly well. Hmm. Christopher Moore commented on BlasphemousTomes.com Don't forget, the late, great Robert Anton Wilson made The King in Yellow the central MacGuffin in his wonderful book, 
Masks of the Illuminati. Yeah, I mean, this is not part of the Illuminati series. It's a book I read many years ago, only like 30-odd years ago, and I'd completely forgotten The King and Yellow Connection. Hmm. I really must go back and take a look. Wilson was a huge part of my reading diet during my 20s. I, I, I read pretty much everything of his at the time. He certainly influenced my thinking for a long time, and there's a lot of his ideas I certainly don't cleave to, and probably even fewer these days. I, but he was a strange and wonderful thinker. And to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about Martyrs? Well, what do we think, ultimately, the enduring appeal of this film is? I mean, well, for a start, I mean, has the appeal endured? Oh, I, I easily rank this as one of my favourite films. I think oh, it's right. a fantastic piece. Yeah. yeah it's, like I said earlier, the thing that really hooks me is that a lot of horror films leave me kind of numb and bored by the fact that it's just relentless and meaningless gore and violence. But Every single thing in this film has a point. It all builds on a philosophy and a goal that the group have, and it has a remarkable payoff. And I think that puts it way above a whole raft of other horror films out there. It's honestly just in a league of its own for me. Yeah, how about you, Paul? I was cautious about watching it again because it was such a gruelling experience watching it the first time. Part of me wondered, will it have lost its impact after 10 years? And part of me just didn't really want to sit through that again. Mm, But actually, I found it a rewarding watch the second time. I think the first time I saw it, I struggled to keep up with really what was going on with these girls in the first half of the film. So, you know, knowing what was going to happen, I was able to appreciate the the story more fully. And I think, like I say, it is a great balance of really the grimmest, most unpleasant material alongside like really intriguing, interesting story with a great payoff. And like Matt says, it kind of stands alone because I can't think of anything else quite like this. No, no, I can't either. What do you think, Scott? You watched it originally like 10 years ago. Did you find that it stood up? Yes. I had a similar reservation about watching it again as you did because I really did find that last third of it hard to sit through. It didn't quite have the same impact this time. I, one thing that was very different this time is I, I had almost the polar opposite experience of you, I think, there with that first half, in that what really sold me on the film first time, what made it such a, a remarkable experience, was the fact that I did spend my whole time watching it disorientated, not sure what was going on, not sure what was going to happen next. And that is a rare thing for me in a film because, you know, I have seen so many horror films over the years and I, I felt on the ropes all the way through it. And I liked that sense of confusion. I liked that feeling of what the hell is going to happen next, what's going on, what kind of film am I even watching? Obviously, watching it again and knowing what was going on diffused that. It meant it had less of an impact. But I could still appreciate intellectually that it was a very powerful film. And that last third was as gruelling as ever. Horrified, confused and not knowing what's going on, that's just my everyday existence Scott. <laughs> yes. that's not unique to films <laughs> no but it did make me think of a friend of mine who's got a daughter who's been self-harming and attempting suicide and he's had to kick several doors in to find a room filled with blood and you know I really sympathize with him mm. and um yeah it's kind of giving me chills now thinking about it really yeah so it put me in mind of that which i found yeah. pretty disturbing that first part 
Yeah, and I guess the fact that it isn't a supernatural horror film, I mean, for, for all we might make of the ending, most of the horror in it, or almost all of the horror in it, is very human. It's a story about about the human capacity for cruelty and the human capacity for inflicting pain, uh, albeit with very noble reasons. Uh, that, to me, is something that gets to me more in horror than anything else. Ghosts and monsters and eldritch abominations from beyond space and time and, and so on. I mean, they're, they're all very cool, but they don't tend to genuinely upset me. But human cruelty, that is the thing that cuts me inside. That is the thing that will genuinely upset me. And Martyrs is one of those rare films that left me feeling really upset at the end. Mm. Whereas there was me going, Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're a fucking psychopath, Matt. <laughs> well one day we'll be able to smile again when that day comes we might do another episode so until then it's a good night from me cheerio from me and farewell from me hello blasphemoustomes.com hello